Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Georges Clemenceau famously said that war is too important to be left to the generals, and civilian control of the military has always been one of the hallmarks of a free society. This is Colleen Chaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs talking with Felix Maradiaga, who worked hard to bring civilian oversight to the army of his country, Nicaragua. He's currently a World Fellow at Yale University. You came to this work as a peace advocate for some very personal reasons. Can you tell me about that? Good morning, uh, Colleen. First of all, I would like to thank the Yale Office of Public Affairs for the invitation to this interview. Thank you. Uh, as you know, m most Nicaraguans of my generation, as of September 2008, uh, I'm 32 uh, years old. Um, grew up in a country that's severely affected by war. Mm -hmm. Between 1977 and 1989, more than 80,000 uh, Nicaraguans were killed, sent into exile, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. I see also many of my relatives, neighbors, uh, friends being forced to leave the country or participate in the war, most of them against their will. In fact, for two years, between 1998 and 1990, I was part of the Nicaraguan diaspora, living in Florida with foster parents. Mm -hmm. However, my, my heart calling was always back in Nicaragua. So I, I told myself that as soon as I had the chance to go back and contribute to the reconstruction of my country, I would do so. And the, the opportunity presented itself when we had democratic elections in 1990. I went back home, uh, completed college, and uh, in January 1997, fresh out of school, I immediately looked into opportunities to use my modest skills as a youth organizer mm -hmm. to work in national reconciliation. So basically, that's the, the story. So tell me a little bit about that reconciliation work. What were you doing? Um, I was, as part of uh, youth network, uh, we were trying to bring together um, youth um, leaders from different uh, factions, some of them working either with political parties or, or uh youth that previously had been child soldiers, mm -hmm. trying to bring them together in a, a, a national uh, dialogue forum. So um, uh, one of them was uh, a forum sponsored by the Catholic Church of Nicaragua, uh, which I, uh, I presided over for some time, and the other one was uh, the National Youth Council, which is the, currently the largest uh, youth umbrella organization in the country. So after doing all this work, this peace work essentially, you were asked to help form the Ministry of Defense. That must have come as a surprise. Yeah, basically that, that was the story. Uh, during my high school years, uh, I worked in northern Nicaragua um, in, in rural communities. Thanks to the opportunity given by my parish, I was allowed to extensively travel through the rural communities that had been severely affected by war. And not only uh, had the chance to uh, know the geography and the um, a culture of those communities, but most importantly to witness from within the uh, uh, abject poverty in which our campesinos uh, live. Mm -hmm. So um, when we had a new government, the new authorities believed that I could use those modest uh, skills and knowledge of the communities to participate in the process of demobilization, uh, and most importantly to participate in the construction and development of, of the, this new institution, the ministry. Now, working within the government instead of outside as an advocate, did you have any fears that you would be compromised? Um, that is a great question, Colleen. Um, if, you know, as a, uh, as a youth organizer, as someone who, who, who believes probably not in radical change, but, but, but in fundamental change of the structures of your country, mm -hmm. that is always a question, that working for a government, even if you had some um, 
uh, ideological sympathy with the new government, you still have that, that question. But in the case of the institution I was working with, w which was basically arms control, demobilization, combat, combatant reintegration, mm -hmm. and the creation of a Ministry of Defense, that was quite a revolutionary idea. So by working in the ministry, in fact, that was not working for the system. We had a lot of, I wouldn't use the word conspiracy, it's too much of a strong word, but the system, we were being anti-systemic, if I may yes. use the word, in the sense that the idea, uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, romantic young civilians truly believing that uh, they could exercise democratic control of the armed forces. That was pretty radical, I would say. Yeah, which, which leads to the really obvious question. How do you get an army to yield power? They don't have to. Uh, yeah, and that, that's one of the classical questions. You know, when you have uh, you know the guardians of of, of a nation, you know, so-called guardians, who so who guards or who controls the guardians, and uh, you know, from the classical um, approach of incentives, when, what what kind of incentives has the military to 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 uh, um, uh, yield power? Uh, actually, proved to be a process uh, way more complicated than what we originally estimated. Uh -huh. uh, in the case of Nicaragua, most of the democratic reforms of the army were a direct result of the end of war. So basically when, when we had um, the official end of war, because we still had some conflicts in the northern areas, I explained for probably even seven years after the official uh, mm -hmm. peace agreement, um, the, 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 uh, there wasn't necessary to have such a huge army. So around 80% of the army was reduced. And uh, the army in itself understood that if they wanted to survive mm -hmm. as an institution, they had to search for legitimacy and civilian control is part of, of that. And uh, when, when I uh, analyze the current status of the army today, um, we are not there yet in terms of civilian control, particularly in issues such as intelligence and, and, and expenditure. Mm -hmm. But the army, it's one of the most um, uh, uh, um, publicly recognized in, in terms of popularity and, and legitimacy institutions in the country, in the, in the polls. And I would like to think that that, is part, that was part of the process. Now, you mentioned that combatant demobilization and reintegration was part of this work. And that's a stumbling block in ending so many conflicts around the world. What did you find worked? Um, I think that, um, once again, as in the same case of the army, the end of war was uh, the fundamental incentive mm -hmm. for, uh, for, for uh, demobilization. There wasn't any concrete reason for, in this particular uh, case, the, the resistance, uh, also known as the contrast, to keep on fighting. And those who were part of the army, were, uh, once the army was reduced, had, had to go back home. Mm -hmm. But the most fundamental question uh, were the issues of exclusion, disenfranchisement, uh, uh, la lack of uh, uh, access to public services. So most of these uh, uh, people had, had, even after many years of fighting, did not solve the fundamental problems of their communities, the things mm -hmm. that, that uh, were the original incentives for them to fight. So as someone who works in the mobilization, and, and I think this applies not only to Nicaragua, but to any case, if you don't look into those fundamental questions mm -hmm. and th try to address it, try to address what are the underlying causes of people to use violence as a source to, to make their voice heard, then the process would not work. And in our case, we really focus on that. We focus fundamentally in trying to identify why, what kind of interventions the state could uh, conduct in those communities in order to uh, 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 bring the process to a successful end. You know, as you talked about, it, it was such a long process. The, the war started in the 70s and really the violence dragged on through the 90s. 
What do you think Nicaragua ultimately needs to, to move towards solid peace and prosperity? The country has had indeed a, a substantial process in several areas, and one of them is precisely the presence of a nonpartisan military and police forces, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's, of course, uh, uh, I mean, there are many challenges in this regard, uh, but, but mostly there has been progress in that particular point. But in terms of, uh, of the things that the country is lacking to, 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 to truly become a stable uh, country, I would say that the, the most fundamental elements of liberal democracy, you know, mm -hmm. tolerance, transparency, respect for individual liberties, for private property, freedom of speech, and Colleen, uh, even fair elections. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's so sad to mention that even fair elections is something that we have not reached right, yet. And Mr. Ortega problems. has sadly uh, given us a sad reminder that we are lacking those basic ingredients for, for prosperity. Mm -hmm. After rising to a cabinet-level post, you actually left the government to form an NGO, the Civil Society Leadership Institute. What are you hoping to accomplish with this organization? Um, our institute is the training center of Movimiento por Nicaragua, MPN, which stands for Movement for Nicaragua, which is an ad advocacy organization that works for the promotion of, of the elements of democracy that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So if MPN can at least revitalize national dialogue, if we can uh, bring contending factions back to the table, and when, if we can inspire people in the idea that sustainable democracy and peace is at, is at last possible. Colleen, I, I would say that we have accomplished something if we, if we can do that. And it's, it's, it's proven quite a challenge. Tell me a little bit about your World Fellows experience. How do you think it's going to help you with that challenge? Oh, the, the Year World Fellows program is um, uh, an extraordinary example of, of how institutions of higher education and uh, in the developed world, especially those of, of world-class caliber such as Yale, can... Uh, um, generate change through uh, in, in, in different areas of the world and actually involve itself as an institution in creating change. And they do this by, by recruiting people such as, such as myself and giving us tools, uh, learn, uh, teach us to, to or train uh, in certain areas such as uh, you know innovation, searching for fresh ideas in the struggle against poverty, conflict prevention. So this program is a great testimony on, uh, not only of Yale's commitment with the betterment of, uh, um, of the world, and, um, but it's also an opportunity to inspire those of us who are at the grassroots level and to remind us that we are not alone. So for me, that, that, that's a huge contribution to the work I do back home, feeling that I am not alone, that there are people in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. in Pakistan, in Lebanon, in, 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 even in the UN, <laughs> um, doing amazing things for the world. Thank you. We've been talking with Felix Mardiaga, who's participating in Yale's World Fellows Program for emerging leaders around the globe. For more information, please visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.